Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com slash Unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Thank you again for tuning in to Unhedged. And again, it's a happy Saturday morning here in Singapore at roughly 7 a.m. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest, Robert Picard from New York City. Rob, good to see you this morning. How are you? Great to see you, Frank, and uh, quite grateful that you didn't force me to take the 18-hour flight from Newark to Singapore in order to be there. Oh yeah, no, I, I, uh, uh, but, but again, when you fly out here, you, you tend to fly pretty well. So you're, you're either what on Sing Air or one of the other, uh, quality flights when you come out. So we're, uh, we're not I, having I, you slum it when you come out here. Well, I'm not sure if you, you're obviously getting plugged and or support from Star Alliance, but that's definitely my favorite airline and uh, Singapore <laughs> United are definitely <laughs> my choices. <laughs> Stop. No, Rob, I'm good. I'm going to ask you one favor. If you could just come a little closer to your mic, so we'll we'll see that um, we can hear your voice. And and for the sake of giving you a a subtle plug uh, for your show, Hedge Speak, which is coming up, um, I always tease you that you have a better radio voice than me. But but maybe can you talk with our our listeners a little bit about what uh, some of the projects that you're looking at with Hedge Speak going into the year? And again, if you can come closer so that we can hear your good voice. Yeah, I'm trying to adjust my uh, my output. I'm not sure if that's going to help, but uh, most importantly, so I've uh, been in the uh, hedge fund industry now for almost 30 years, and uh, I uh, have a, a blog and a podcast called Hedge Speak, and uh, basically the concept is uh, hedge funds and hedging. Uh, I believe it's less about strategy uh, and ideas, and it's more about the people behind those ideas and how they're sourcing those ideas. And uh, it goes back, I've got like 20, 25 years of material of hedge fund managers' uh, points of view um, about the markets and uh, some of their uh, golden nuggets and anecdotes of, uh, of career newsletters and others that I like to share uh, with listeners and uh, uh, investors. Now, you, you've, you've, uh, you and I have known each other for a long time, so I, I, I think we, we can pick, pick, we can pick, we on, can pick on one another here. Um, um, well, Rob, we might have a feedback loop. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay yeah, now? I hear you great. Yes. Okay. For some reason we had a little bit of a reverb. Um, so you and I have known each other for, for, um, uh, quite some time. And, and, you know, for one of the things we're trying to do with this show is we want to present, um, 
a more eclectic discussion. So let, let's assume somebody listening to the show, non-industry participant, his only understanding of hedge funds is, you know, these guys get enormous compensation or they're reading about, you know, Paul Singer and, and him destroying the, some company or Ackman destroying some company. I mean, what, what, why should anyone or the average listener care what, what the hedge fund community is doing today? Well, Frank, it's a good point. And I think it's very funny. Hedge funds now, since I've been in this industry and it's almost close to 30 years, for some reason, the media um, have always been bashing hedge funds, and it's, it's sort of um, always had bad press. Um, my view has always been that um, when it comes to investing, you always want to search out um, the best money managers and, most importantly, uh, the best active money managers in the world, uh, people who basically can go out and, and, and do anything. And, and what it really comes down to is the traditional asset managers are typically very much um, – handcuffed in the way they can make money. What's interesting about hedge funds and why your investors and, and investors in general should be constantly looking at what hedge fund managers are doing is because those hedge fund managers uh, have the most tools available. They have the most freedom to be um, the most active um, in order to make money and generate uh, returns for their investors. So rather than sort of bashing them, I think what's really interesting about the industry is that um, these are the people you should turn to to, to sort of really get a, a pulse and a feeling for where the smart money is moving. Now, that said, there's a caveat, Frank, and, and you and I both know this, which is over the years, uh, in addition to George Soros, uh, John Paulson, and many others, uh, many other famous names, where, where investors or people see the ability to make money, uh, invariably uh, you'll see some mediocre um, and, and poor money managers drifting towards that space because they feel it's easy money. And invariably what happens is um, where it was reserved for the best active managers, there's many mediocre and uh, less than uh, successful active managers that have kind of entered into the space. And that's really been sort of frustrating and, and really where um, I myself and uh, my colleagues add value because our job is to figure out who are the best uh, money managers in the world. Well, and, and that gets back to, um, you know, for the folks listening that might not necessarily know some of the vocabulary, but, but, you know, they, they have the term survivorship bias. So, so to your point, if, if you're analyzing a universe of a hundred funds that are out there actively trading and managing money behind that, there might be 600 firms that failed in the past year that have, that have dropped off the grid. And, and what, 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 what have you seen, you know, you and I've seen this so many times before where you, you get folks who uh, pull together a little bit of capital. They'll get 50 or a hundred bucks together, get a Bloomberg, get an office in New Jersey, start trading uh, and inevitably blow out in a cycle. You know, some guys are momentum guys, some guys are value guys where, where, you know, as, as you, cause you've worked with and know the larger shops really, really well. What, what at the end of the day, are they doing? Are, are they, are they capital allocators? Are they just a stable of, of people that, that can generate returns, generate alpha? Um, you know, what, what, what do you see for the, for the larger shops? What's, what's the secret sauce that they finally have figured well, out? Well, um, it, it's a great question. Uh, and, um, anytime someone listens, mentions survivorship bias, I always start to laugh because it's, there's a lot of syllables there. And it, uh, is, is very relevant because invariably many of these um, active managers uh, fail. 
uh, in their first year or two. And, and what you, you what I'm going to share with you is sort of the secret sauce or the secret su- success invariably is that hedge fund manager that's able to find an edge and is able to demonstrate that edge in a clear, concise manner. When I say edge, I mean his ability to make money regardless of the market um, indicators and regardless of the market direction. And it's someone who um, invariably has an ability to um, uh, allocate capital in an advantageous way. Now, what typically happens is it, it's it's kind of a recipe. It's not just the ability to make money. There's a lot of great money managers who never raise a dime or have difficulty raising a dime because they might be great money managers, but they're not good marketers. And in order to raise money, you really need uh, the ability to communicate your strategy uh, to investors and convince investors uh, that you're able to uh, be successful and um, careful with their money. So one of those secret sauces of, of the larger shops invariably is um, their network. So very often, um, for many years, some of the, most, the largest uh, hedge fund firms were started that came out of the merger arbitrage group or the group, event-driven group at Goldman Sachs. That could have been Tom Steyer, who's very much in the news these days as he's getting more involved with politics in the United States. But Tom Steyer ran Farallon. Uh, and then there were a number of others, including Dan Ock and Richard Perry, who came from the same group, uh, were less research-oriented, but much more um, strategy and merger arbitrage-oriented and, and financial engineering-oriented. And basically, by the fact that they simply worked at the Goldman Sachs desk um, in that space, invariably, um, investors from around the world, family offices, uh, endowments, foundations, and, and certain uh, other funds uh, immediately allocated money to them based on their background and based on word of mouth, meaning their network. Then there's another network, for instance, in addition to the Goldman Sachs network, there's a Tiger network, which would be Julian Robertson. Uh, now, unfortunately, my father um, years ago lost quite a bit of money uh, investing with Julian. Uh, you might remember U.S. Air, a number of others. But after, after oh, yeah. U.S. Air, uh, Julian um, basically started seeding with his own money a lot of great money managers, and uh, they're referred to now as Tiger Cubs, meaning people who spun out of Julian's original uh, investment shop. And those were uh, traditionally investor uh, firms that received quite a bit of money, meaning Julian would go to cocktail parties uh, just basically by um, letting the investment community know that Julian was um, seeding or giving capital to these managers. Uh, Julian, to a certain degree, would share part of the fees from that. But most importantly, that would be a blessing and would allow others to immediately invest uh, alongside Julian Robertson. And that was kind of very much what would occur uh, for for many years. And um, it's if you're not part of the traditional networks, um, very often uh, these managers who aren't well-known, aren't very good at communicating their message and or their brand, would invariably just fail to raise money. And if they fail to raise money, uh, they would invariably slowly disappear uh, because they, they are not able to um, run a business. And, and I like to talk about um, the life cycle of a traditional hedge fund or a startup hedge fund manager. Um, he typically is a great money manager from a trading desk or from a money management firm. He basically sets up his own firm, and then he basically has to wear multiple hats. Uh, he has to become a great uh, marketer. He has to go out and communicate his message while at the same time he's actually managing the money and trying to make returns. And then suddenly he now has to start to manage people, um, manage infrastructure, 
And he ultimately becomes a, a business manager or a business administrator. And what very often happens in the life cycle or throughout that life cycle is that a lot of these managers suddenly realize that they hate doing all of the above except for managing money. And invariably, um, if they're successful, they're able to find individuals that are very good at raising money, uh, at managing their business, such as a chief operating officer, and they hire these individuals to sort of allow them to do what they do best. The, the problem is that costs money and they have to have had enough assets in their management to get there. And that's really the, 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 um, the life cycle, which is whether they get there or not uh, to, to have the economics to be able to do that. You know, you, you, you hit on, a, I, I think, an important point, especially for those who, who want to set up shop. And, and if we could spend a little time on that, where, you know, back in the old days when I had hair on my head and was 20 pounds lighter, we, we used to refer to, you know, Goldman as Uncle Goldman, because for, for the guys there, you know, there but for the grace of their uncle, uh, you know, when, when you looked at it, you could take a really cynical approach and say they, they really don't have anything. Like, you know, you and I know tons of people who who just did well because they were sitting on top of a ton of information flow. You know, they were seeing bids, bids and offers all day, you know, just as a natural extension of the flow naturally coming through the firm. And guys would attribute that to talent when, in fact, it was actually Uncle Goldman. You know, you, you were there, there, but for the grace of God, you were there because of them. And, and you're point is spot on where how many times have we seen guys where no sooner do they set up shop and pardon my French, they have the oh shit reaction where they realize like just how crucial compliance is and, and, or, and, or when one of their prime brokers turns around and starts bearing their fangs on a credit facility or something. And, and you realize that, you know, you and I remember in the old days, you, a hundred million used to be the marker. Now it seems like a billion dollars is the marker in assets. And how, how, how do managers, as they look at this, I mean, what, what, what's the critical mass where you would say to somebody, you know what, it makes sense for you to go out and plant the flag versus, you know, do you cut a deal with one of the larger firms and, or like a hedge fund hotel, you know, to, to get that infrastructure up? Cause it, it sounds like the barriers, like, while it seems easy, all you need is a trading screen and, and, you know, some assets, but at the end of the day, if you're really going to do it, you, there, there has to be a critical mass that you should be at. I went, and what would that be? Well, uh, to answer your question, historically it used to be between, I know I say historically 10 years ago, um, pre 2008, um, during the go-go years of hedge funds, um, from probably about 1998 to 2008, it was anywhere between 25 to 50 million would be enough to, uh, survive, uh, and get, uh, and continue to operate a business. Now with all of the regulatory oversight, um, post, uh, Bernie Madoff, um, both U S and European and Asian regulators, Singapore also have, uh, implemented so many, um, regulations that invariably the costs have gone up significantly from a compliance perspective. And quite frankly, the number now in order to survive is uh, somewhere between hundred to $200 million in order to operate a business yeah. um, in an adequate fashion. Now um, don't despair for all those money managers out there. Um, I think there's obviously a whole new cottage industry that has developed, which is sort of outsourcing of um, infrastructure, so outsourcing of compliance and a lot of this regulatory oversight. But even that outsourcing still costs um, a significant amount of capital. 
and still requires um, probably $100 million to ultimately be, be of interest or gain traction within the family office and endowment community. Uh, you can really only attack um, the private wealth management platforms and private banks and um, institutional investors such as pension funds and others only when you're at the uh, $500 million to billion dollar mark, only because they are restricted from investing in smaller money managers and they can't, um, it, it's, it's, it makes no sense for them to allocate um, smaller than $100 million tickets because they have so much money to deploy within the hedge fund industry and they can't afford to be 100% of the capital of any one money manager. That's a significant uh, manager risk for them. Uh, so invariably, it's uh, it's really that $100 million to $200 million range uh, for uh, setting up a business today and being able to survive. Amazing how times change. And Rob, why don't we do this? Let's give our sponsors a chance to uh, advocate their, their value add and services. And for our listeners, we'll be right back and we'll start deep diving into where and how in the alternative space we, sh- we should be looking. And Rob, we're not going to let you go off air without... Uh, uh, pursuant to the, the the title of the show, uh, we're going to need to pick your brains on the current administration. So you're not going to leave here without talking with us about Trump. So uh, for folks, stay tuned. We'll be right back with a second segment. Thank you again. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners.